All right. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And I would love to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you brought one, to Jonah chapter 4. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible on the ground near you. You can find Jonah 4 on page 775 uh, there. Or you're welcome to just listen along as I read in just a moment. Um, It might just be good to say that obviously we know that children make noise and chairs squeak and don't feel anxious about that. If you, if you do feel the need to, you can kind of head out into the lobby and still be able to hear and participate. Um, but you're not going to interrupt the, uh, the, the service this morning with, uh, with kids making any noise. It might just help us to take ourselves a little bit less seriously. So. With that, let me ask you if you are willing and able to stand with me as we read God's Word together. If you're just joining us this morning, we are now at the end of the book of Jonah, and Jonah, after running away and getting swallowed by a fish and thrown up back on the sea, on the land, he's gone to Nineveh, and he's preached to Nineveh, and the entire city has repented. And it says this in Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for this incredible book. Uh, What God but you would put uh, a book in the Bible where the hero is so comical. And yet, God, as much as we uh, chuckle at Jonah, would you give us the same humility to look at our own lives? Would you help us to be honest about who we are so that we might know your mercy anew this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated, please. So this is a strange way to end this story, isn't it? 
Jonah goes, probably leads the most remarkable revival in history, and he is so ticked. If you've ever finished a big project at work, imagine finishing the most significant thing you're ever going to do. And you sign it off, you make the sale, whatever you're done, you would celebrate, right? You would go out with your friends or your family and you would celebrate. Imagine if you're a parent and your child graduates with honors. What would you do? You would celebrate, right? This is good news. Imagine, uh, you know, kids here. Your, your soccer team or your baseball team, you practice hard all season and you play and you win the championship. What do you do afterwards? You go out to pizza, right? You celebrate, you play, you know, uh, that claw game until you break it, right? You celebrate. But that's not what Jonah does. He leads perhaps the most significant revival in human history and, uh, and he does not celebrate when God blesses his work. If you're a prophet and God called you to communicate his grace to a city and on the very first day of your work, you go in and 120,000 people respond to your message. I would celebrate, right? But Jonah is ticked. He is not happy at all. Uh, We would think that this book should end very differently. It should end like a Disney movie or even better like a, what's that, Bollywood movie? What's the name of that movie? I forget. You know what a Bollywood movie is? It always ends where everybody knows all the words to the same song, mysteriously. Everybody breaks out in song and dance and they're throwing confetti and, you know, colored powder around. Like, that's how this should end. Jonah, wow. And he goes back celebrating what God has done through him. But that's not how it ends. Instead, it ends with Jonah's violent mood swings. And in a huff, he goes outside the city to watch hoping that despite the fact that God relented of his anger, he's hoping, you know, if he, like, is angry enough that maybe God's actually going to, like, call down fire and brimstone and wipe the city out. What is going on with Jonah? And maybe more importantly than that, what does it have to do with us? Well, did you notice in this last chapter that God asks Jonah three questions? And I think in these three questions... Um, And in the discordant end to this book, we finally see the meaning of the book and and what it has to do with us, what God would have to say to us in 2019 in South Orange County. So, question one, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? As we've seen, Jonah finally, reluctantly, Uh, Having rebelled and not gotten away with his rebellion, he reluctantly goes and he preaches the least inviting, least inspiring sermon known to uh, human beings. And despite all the odds, the people of Nineveh repent and that ticks him off. This is like our church commissioning Trevor Allen or Jason Reed or myself or for that matter, any one of us and saying, we're going to send you to North Korea to preach the gospel. And uh, we go with fear and trembling. And on the first day that we're there, Kim Jong-un repents and puts his trust in Jesus. And we turn around and say, I hate it when that happens. (laughs) Jonah, what is going on? Why is he so angry? And so he goes outside the city 
sitting off at a distance watching, God, please wipe the city out. I can't wait. Why is he so angry? God comes to Jonah and says, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah tells us in response, and we see here what's kind of been underneath his rebellion all along, and he says this. It's actually a quote from the book of Exodus. Jonah says, I knew this all along. I knew that you are a steadfast. Uh, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What we see in Jonah's anger is there is a fundamental disconnect between what Jonah knows is true and his actual experience of that truth. He knows in his head that God is gracious and yet that grace has failed to melt Jonah's heart. God, I know, I know, he says, I know that you're gracious, but now you're actually being gracious and it makes me so mad. (laughs) God, I know that you're merciful, but now I actually see you exhibiting mercy and I'm frustrated, I hate it. It's a disconnect between what Jonah knows about God and the extent to which that knowledge has transformed him. And I think, friends, we have to say that that same reality is an epidemic in the Western church today. Because, listen, Jonah is a guy who knows, he has a sound theology. He has a, an orthodox confession, and yet he's rude, and he's judgmental, and he's proud. And he says, yes, God, grace for me, but not for them. Not for them, God. If there's a lesson to learn from Jonah's anger, it's this. We cannot mistake knowing the right answers to questions about the Bible with spiritual maturity. We cannot equate those two. Um, Back when we were newly married, my wife and I uh, would play, we would regularly play this Bible trivia game with her parents. I know that's like the nerdiest thing I could have possibly said, but, you know, we liked playing this game. But... It was fun, Bible trivia, Um, but then I went to seminary, and for three years I studied the Bible and theology and church history, and after three years in seminary, I just schooled them in Bible trivia every time. I knew every answer, they actually made it, I had to win twice before I could consider having won, and then they just stopped playing with me altogether, and it made me so frustrated because I knew the right answers, but I discovered over time that knowing all the right answers to Bible trivia does not actually mean that those truths have changed you. They have not necessarily worked their way from our head to our heart. See, friends, the goal of knowledge isn't knowledge itself. The goal of knowledge is wisdom. Wisdom is skill in living. Uh, the truth about who God is, as the Bible so richly unfolds for us, is meant to transform the way that we live in the world. The goal of knowledge is transformation. The reason that it's important to know about God is so that we might be transformed by him, first personally, and then having been transformed personally, individually, uh, that, that is to move us outward into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, to be agents of transformation in our cities as well. So this first question that God asks Jonah, God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? I think what, what God is getting at is, Jonah, who do you think you are? Why do you think that grace is, you know, for you, but not for them out there? Jonah sees the evil uh, tendencies of the Ninevites, and he 
in pride, uh, wants God to judge them, but he doesn't see those same evil tendencies in his own heart. We cannot experience the grace of God without being stunned and simultaneously humbled that the God of the universe would draw near to us. And so Jonah's anger betrays what's really going on in his heart. Anger is often called a secondary emotion. Uh, Anger is not the problem. It's the indication that there is a problem. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So let me ask you this. What makes you angry? And what does your anger reveal about what's going on in your heart? Do we have a, uh, a knowledge of who God is that has yet to transform uh, the way we live out that wisdom, that, that transformation in the world? Do we believe that God's grace is for us but not for them? Do we have an instinct to protect ourselves when God has been lavish with his grace? Is our generosity measured and calculated friends, I am so thankful that God does not lavish his grace on us the way that we calculate our own generosity. When we calculate the measure of our generosity with the precision of an accountant, but God demonstrates his grace, his mercy, lavishly, generously, overflowing. Has the mercy of God transformed you? That's the first question. The second question God follows up with is, do you have any right to be angry about the plants? Now this, I think, is funny. <laughs> Jonah uh, you know, comes outside the city. He said, you know, what he said to God, I'm so angry I could die. And, you know, in a huff, he's like, oh, I've given God something to think about, and so he kind of marches up to the top of this hill, and, uh, and he builds a shelter so he can get out of the, out of the sun, and um, he said, you know, I told God, I've given him a piece of my mind, so I'm sure I've convinced him, and finally now he's going to do the fireworks show I've been waiting for, and he's going to wipe Nineveh off the, uh, off the face of the earth, and he's sitting there, and it says that God uh, ordains that a plant, a leafy plant grows up. And uh, it gives Jonah shade, and it said he was exceedingly happy. The only thing he's happy about in the entire book. And then the next morning, God sends a worm that attacks the plants, and it withers and dies. And then God sends a scorching east wind, and the sun beats down on Jonah's head. And Jonah is exceedingly angry. And God says to Jonah, "Um, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah says, oh God, would you just kill me now? (laughs) I'm so angry I could die. And what we see here is that God is bringing circumstances into Jonah's life to expose the reality that something is deeply wrong in his own heart. There There is something that has come in between Jonah and God himself. There is is a desire uh, to protect himself a desire to uh, kind of camp out on his rights, a desire for his own comfort that has gotten between Jonah and God. You don't say, I'm so angry that I can die, that I could die, unless your meaning and purpose in life has been stripped away from you. And our anger reveals to us those things that we've placed in between God and ourselves and said we must have them in order to be happy. 
One of the ironies of this book is that Jonah's only moment of sanity in the entire book is when he's swallowed by the fish, and there in the belly of the fish, as he's totally trapped, and he's in, he says, I'm imprisoned in the depths of the sea. Three days in darkness. That is the one place where Jonah cries out to God. It's when his comfort and his rights and his freedom is stripped away that Jonah actually turns towards God. But here, once he's free again, Jonah's obsessed with his comfort and his rights. And you know, um, that seems like it would be a very modern problem to be sort of uh, obsessed or overly enthusiastic about our rights, what I have the right to do, um, to make my comfort the highest priority in my life. It seems like it would be a modern problem. Francis Schaeffer, the theologian, in his book, The Church at the End of the 21st Century, singled out essentially those two characteristics. Uh, He said they would be the undoing of the church in America. Our obsession with personal peace and affluence would be the undoing of the church in America. When our comfort and our own sense of rights become more important to us, we love them more than God. And we are in big trouble. It seems like it's a modern problem, but it's not because Jonah was experiencing it 2,700 years ago. It's nothing new under the sun. So we have to continually come back and ask the question, would you rather have your comfort and your rights or would you rather have God? Would you rather have God or your comfort and your rights? Now, I think most of us would say something like, I would like both, please. But friends, listen, uh, you don't need me to tell you that we now live in a time in our country where it seems like we are increasingly at odds. We are increasingly divided. But what may not have occurred to you is that the division in our country is over two competing visions of how best to protect the rights of individuals. That is essentially what our nation is itself apart over. Those who believe that the best way to protect the rights of individuals, listen how it just got so quiet, didn't it? Is the best way to protect the rights of individuals the state or the free market? And uh, often what is happening now in our world, is in our, in our country, is this. Uh, we've grown increasingly divided and we've dug our heels in. Heels in and um, what I want you to see is that that actually opens up a credi- an incredible opportunity for the church in our time. Because that war over the best way to guarantee individual rights will never be won on the terms of that argument alone. This is what I mean. You've got left and right arguing about the best way to guarantee rights, and the church either endorsing one view or the other kind of standing apart and acting as like the moral police uh, as our country like fights with itself. But what Jonah would lead us to believe is that no one party will persuade the others as long as we are arguing over the base on the basis of our own rights. And it is when the church begins to move out in the world with compassion that, that we will be persuasive and effective. But in order to move out into the world with compassion, we have to give up our obsession with our comfort. Because this is the reality. Anybody that you love, let me come back to that in a sec. To really, I think to really understand how that tension can be solved in our world, you have to look at the third question. Because the third, the third question is, is God not asking about Jonah, but asking about himself. 
God says, um, should I not have compassion? Should I not pity that great city? Jonah is so angry he wants to die because the only thing in this whole story that he really cared about, his own comfort has been taken away from him. And so, and so God says to Jonah, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, you didn't make it grow, it came up in the night and it perished in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? The word pity is the word for compassion. Um, it's the word for weeping over something. God is saying, Jonah, you have compassion on yourself and your comfort. <laughs> the only thing that moves your heart, Jonah, is your own comfort. But Jonah, I have compassion for this city. I weep for this city, this city because spiritually speaking, these people don't know up from down, left from right, they are lost. They're wicked, and my heart breaks for them. What does it mean to have compassion, and what would it look like for Christians in 2019 to have compassion in our culture, in our world, with our friends who are deeply divided over concern for our rights and comfort and move towards them with compassion? To have compassion means to grieve with someone. Uh, To have compassion means that, it means this, when you love somebody, you, you attach your heart to their well-being. You know, every parent knows this. When your child comes home from school, you know, with a heartbreaking story about what happened at recess, you, you actually hurt with them, right? When, when something good happens in the life of somebody you love, you, you're, you, feel, you don't just, like, say nice things to them. You actually feel happy for them. And when somebody that you love is in turmoil, you are in turmoil as well. And so God is saying the condition of the Ninevites grieves me because I, I, I weep over them. God pulls their sorrow and their failure into himself, and he grieves and he weeps over how lost they, lost they are. Uh, there's an incredible quote in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, where he says um, something remarkable about God that if, if, uh, if somebody less distinguished than theologian J.I. Packer said this, you probably wouldn't believe it. But Packer says this, he says, God was happy without humans before they were made, and he would have continued happy had he simply destroyed them after they had sinned. But as it is, he has set his love upon particular sinners, and this means that by his own free voluntary choice, God will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again till he has brought every one of them to heaven. God has, in effect, resolved that henceforth for all eternity... His happiness shall be conditional upon ours. Isn't that incredible? That the holy, infinite, unchangeable God who is in need of nothing would attach his heart to you and to me in such a way that he weeps over our brokenness. Friends, we can never move toward our world with compassion as long as we obsess over our own comfort because moving towards a broken world with compassion would require discomfort. And so as long as our comfort and our rights are the thing that we continue to harp on, we will always find ourselves at loggerheads with our world. But if we give up our obsession with comfort, and we, we give our hearts to our neighbors, then we will be drawn into compassion for them and with them. 
So how are we going to do that? See, that's the question, because it would be really demoralizing, I think, to say, give up your affluence, give up your comfort, come on, you petty people, just get with the program here, right? Let us pray, go get her done. But I don't think that's the solution. Because, friends, God has made his own happiness contingent upon ours, and in so doing, I think he is inviting us to make our own happiness contingent upon his. Does that make sense? God has made his happiness contingent upon ours, and he's asking us in response to make our happiness not contingent upon our circumstances or our comfort, but upon his own happiness. Because God, the triune God who exists eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in community with himself, needs absolutely nothing, and he is perfectly content in himself. And in Christ, God is inviting us into his life, asking us to place him as our highest good so that our happiness, our our comfort, our joy is not determined by our circumstances, but it's contingent upon the God who needs nothing and who will never run out and whose love will never cease to be enough. And when that happens, we can loosen our grip on our own comfort and begin to have compassion those who are far from God. As a side note, I want to encourage you to be here next Sunday because in our town hall meeting, we're going to spend about 15 or 20 minutes talking about how we believe God is going to work that out in the life of Resurrection of Sea over the next 12 to 18 months. What is that practically going to look like for us to move towards our neighborhood with compassion? God says to Jonah, I'm weeping over this city, Jonah. Why aren't you? Jonah, you're a prophet. I've called you to speak my words to these people. Why does your heart not break for them? Jonah's heart is unmoved by those who are far from God, but another prophet comes 700 years later. And Jesus, the true prophet, in the final week of his life, uh, over, looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps for Jerusalem and he says, I long to gather you into, into my life so that your, your joy won't, wouldn't be contingent upon your circumstances but that I might fill you and be all in all for you. Jesus longing to gather them into himself with compassion Jonah goes outside of the city to watch, hoping that God will bring judgment. Jesus is dragged outside of the city to hang on the cross. And in doing so, he knows for certain that he will bring the compassion, the mercy, the grace of God. If God is God, he must justly punish evil. And so on the cross, God doesn't demand punishment for the guilty from the guilty, but rather God brings upon himself the guilt of us all. So that he might justly punish sin without wiping us out. God, in compassion for you and for me, moves towards us, of course gives up his comfort, does not assert his rights in order to suffer and die for us. Jesus presents us before the face of God himself, perfect without blemish, because he loves you. Do you see, compassion isn't just 
Compassion isn't just warm feelings for someone. You know, feeling good about this person. Compassion is attaching your heart to them in such a way that, you know, their joy is your joy and their grief is your grief. And God has compassion for you. He loves you and so he brings you into his life and asks you to make your joy contingent upon his so that you might have compassion for others. The book of Jonah resolves in a, a does not resolve is what I was going to say. It ends in a very strange way, doesn't it? Um, I, I was talking to Jason this morning about, I, I couldn't play the piano or figure out how to do this, but do you know what it means for a note, a, a chord progression to remain unresolved? You know, to, to play notes on a piano in such a way that it clearly is supposed to finish and yet it doesn't, and it's so like, oh, we're big. That's the way the book, of Jonah, the book of Jonah ends. The only book in the Bible that ends with a question. God's saying, Jonah, I have pity for Nineveh, that great city, because there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Does Jonah end with God saying, and there's also cattle? Friends, here's what I think um, God, how God would say, ask that question to us in Orange County in 2019. He would say, should I not have, compiti- uh, should I not have compassion on Orange County because there are 3.2 million people there and also many orange groves? You know, uh, Tim Keller said that your money is way too small. Uh, we carry our money on little pieces of silicone, uh, little plastic cards. Every once in a while we get actual cash, but not so much anymore. In uh, 800 BC, livestock was a form of liquid asset, right? And so what God is saying when he asks this question is he's saying, I am not simply interested in the you know, spiritual uh, good of individuals. I am interested in that, but I am interested in the way that um, the salvation of individuals affects the economic structures of this entire city. Should I not have compassion on these people? And so the book of Jonah ends unresolved with that question. And I think it's, it, it remains, uh, it ends in this kind of unresolved state because our hearts long for resolution and our hearts long for an answer. And so really, this is the way the book of Jonah ends. It's posing a question to us. The book of Jonah concludes with two different, very strong emotions. With Jonah, on the one hand, saying, I'm so angry I could die, refusing to give up his spiritual pride and arrogance. And on the other hand, the outward moving compassion of God. And so the question is before us, resurrection of sea. I'll simply end with this. Should we not have compassion on Orange County? Because there are 3.2 million people here and also many orange groves. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would our hearts uh, beat with your love for this world? Would we not like Jonah um, 
harden our hearts against your mercy and grace. But God, would we not would we not just know that you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Would that reality melt our hearts? You have been so gracious to us. You didn't simply condemn us in our sin. You didn't simply save us but walk away in disgust. But you welcome us into your life. You have had compassion upon us. And in welcoming us into your life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you enable us to put uh, your happiness above our own, to be to make our joy contingent upon your own so that we might not value our comfort and our rights above all else. But we might move with compassion out into a world at odds increasingly with itself, with hope and purpose, and get to play a small part in what you're doing in South Orange County. We pray in Jesus' name.